It's really nice to be here. Julian and I are loving being back in uh, Harvest and Durban and just seeing so many uh, faces of family. Um, and so I just count it such a privilege to be able to share this morning. Um, it's a little bit unfair to follow that video and follow Pete because now I'm entirely messed up. But anyway, that's the best way to preach, I think. Um, before I get there, I did want to speak about the book. Because... Because I wanted to honor Durban. This book is, uh, was born in Durban. This book was worked on and crafted in Durban. And this book was championed and cheered on in Durban, uh, day in, day out, where people would come and see my slightly grouchy, intense face in the coffee shop. And you would just smile and wave at me and uh, keep your distance, because I had my headphones on and looked angry. <laughs> But really, this is uh, the fruit of a community walking together and working together and praying for one another. And so uh, I wanted to honor you guys and I wanted to honor this city. Um, I want to recommend this book not because I wrote it, but because I feel like it's a message on God's heart for our generation. And so I really want to say, if you can at all, please buy this book. It will do you good. It will revolutionize your world. It will change your understanding of why you are on the planet. This is not a book for women's ministry. This is not a feminine, emotional book for only the girls amongst us. This is for every man and every woman in the body of Christ because I really believe that God is waking up sons and daughters in the nations today to bring his kingdom all over the world. And so I recommend this book whole heartedly to you. I wanted to give this book to someone. I'm not sure. Danny, are you still in the room? Is Danny in the building still? She was leading worship. Yes. Danny, I wanted to give this to you because you are my writing buddy. Oh, she's already got one. In which case, it's your privilege. You get to give it to whoever you like. But Danny was with me in the coffee shop. Thank you so much. She's whoever you want. Danny was with me in the coffee shop day in, day out, and we were writing buddies. So feel it's only right that she should have got one. Okay, so when I was praying about what God wanted to speak at the conference, I felt like I read the entire Bible and wasn't sure entirely what he wanted to say, <laughs> just being super honest. And then he started speaking to me and saying, why don't you share from what you've learned in this season? Sometimes we're looking for something super profound out there while he's teaching us something very meaningful in here. And so I wanted to speak on the life cycle of a faith journey. You know, we, we love the idea of faith and adventure, like the philosophy of it, the thought of it, it's great. We have conversations in churches about, oh, wouldn't it be great? I'm so jealous of that person. They're on such an incredible adventure with God right now. We read Old Testament, particularly, and New Testament passages with such rose-tinted glasses, and we dream, wouldn't it be amazing if I was Abraham? No, not if you were him, it wasn't. The idea is always wonderful. The reality is usually terrifying. And so I, I wanted to talk about the life cycle of a faith journey, not because I want to scare you all, although I think some of faith is really scary, and I want to be honest about it, um, but because I believe God wants to infuse our hearts and minds with courage for the journey today. 
The problem when we don't speak truthfully is that when people meet opposition, they assume they were wrong. And we need to start speaking as the body truthfully, honestly, vulnerably about what faith looks like in the day-to-day -day moments. If not, we'll give the Instagram-worthy highlight reel. And then when everybody else is living ordinary life, wondering why on earth it's so uphill, their only assumption will be that they misheard God, rather than recognizing that the uphill journey is part of the life cycle of the faith journey. And so we're going to look at the life of Jacob together today. And I'm, I'm going to kind of speak through his life. So we're not going to read all that many scriptures. I'm going to catch us up on the journey. So Jacob's journey starts in Genesis 25. Jacob is a twin. He had an older brother, Esau. And right from the beginning, you get a sense that their life is going to be interesting. Right from the beginning, even in the womb, there's this jostling about between the two of them. Right from the beginning, God speaks to their mom and says, there's something that's happening here, and the older will serve the younger. And as their story progresses, and you know, we see it kind of over the next eight to 10 chapters in Genesis, there's this constant jostling for position between them. Jacob understood how to hustle. Right from the beginning of the story, you get this glimpse of a guy who sees his older brother and wants his position and figures out way to, ways to manipulate and deceive and to strive and to have his way and have backroom conversations, hustling and hustling and hustling away until he can steal the birthright and until he can steal the blessing, both of which he does. At that point, there's a problem because Esau was the bigger brother, and Esau isn't happy that both his birthright and his blessing have been taken from him. And so we're told there's this moment where Esau is looking to kill Jacob. Now, the problem of their story really starts because we're told in Genesis that Esau was Isaac's favorite. Isaac was their dad. But Jacob was Rebecca's favorite. And so there's this already, this kind of favoritism bringing division in the household. And Re Rebecca comes to Jacob and says, listen, your brother wants to kill you. Let's hustle for a moment. Let's figure out our own solutions for a moment. Let's work hard and come up with a way to fix it on our own. And so what she does is she suggests that Jacob goes away so that he is spared, so that Esau won't find him to kill him. And so Jacob leaves his family, leaves his homeland, and journeys away to his uncle. The whole time, you never hear anyone asking God, what should we do? about the situation. The whole time there's this sense, how can we figure it out? How can we fix it? How can we come to a solution all by ourselves? The problem with the hustle is that it, is that it leaves tremendous mess wherever it goes. And so Jacob goes to his uncle Laban and he starts working for him. And he sees these beautiful, this beautiful woman, Rachel, and he loves her. And he says that he wants to work for her and marry her. And, but what does the uncle do? Well, he doesn't give Rachel. He gives 
Leah instead, who's the older sister. And so Jacob then has to work harder so that he can marry Rachel. And what happens? Laban keeps changing the terms of agreement between them, and the work keeps changing, and the wages keep changing. And literally what you read, if you read these chapters in Genesis, is years and years and years of hustle. You know, I'm getting a little bit nervous in Christian culture at the moment because hustle is becoming something that we're celebrating. Hustle is becoming something that we uh, use in our catchphrases. Come on, I'm going to hustle this morning as if that's the means to breakthrough, as if that's the means to seeing the promises of God happen. And you see it, it's on t-shirts, it's on Christian um, motivational uh, sentences up on Instagram. You'll find it everywhere. You might have used it. I've used it because it's become part of our culture that we talk about getting up and hustling. The problem is hustle isn't really part of the biblical narrative when we're talking about the kingdom because unless your life is grace-empowered and spirit-filled, it's not kingdom fruitfulness. Hustle isn't how the kingdom operates. The people of God didn't see themselves walking into the promises of God because they hustled. No, they saw themselves coming into the promises of God because the Spirit empowered them to do the impossible. You and I were not put on the planet so that we can show the world how to hustle. You and I were put on the planet so we can show the world how to do the impossible by having God himself in the Spirit of God living inside of us, empowering us to do what we could never do by any amount of hustling. That's why you're on the planet. And so whilst I understand the motivation and the idea behind hustle, I have a problem with it because it negates what God wants to do in the impossible in us and acts like you and I can achieve what he's called us to do by working harder. You will not achieve your destiny by working harder. You might as well give up now. You're never going to be able to work hard enough for it because you don't carry the solutions for your destiny. You don't carry the power in and of yourself for your destiny. If you can do it, it's not God. That's the point. And so here we have Jacob, the ultimate picture of hustle. And you know, don't we love mixing things together a little bit? Well, can't we take a little bit of hustle? Can't we take a little bit of religion? mix it in there? Can't we take a little bit of working just a little bit harder to earn something a little bit more? We love to mix it, but the problem is when we mix it, we dilute it, and we come right against how God wants to work. And so you find yourself at odds within yourself because you keep trying to do what God is wanting to do himself. That's Jacob's starting point. That's the human context. That's the first part of the life cycle of faith. Putting our hands up and recognizing there's this inbuilt desire for me to be the solution, for me to have it in myself, for me to be able to fix it, for me to be able to hustle. That's where Jacob finds himself. I love this verse in Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians. Ah, Paul is so lovely as he writes. <laughs> Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
We keep in the Christian community coming up with ways to graduate from our starting point as if the starting point was only relevant for the start and isn't relevant for the journey. The starting point isn't only relevant at step one. It's relevant at step eternity. You who start in the Spirit, you who came alive by the Spirit's work in you, you must continue in the Spirit. For your flesh has no power to carry the promise of God. Your flesh has no power to see the promises come to pass. You foolish Galatians! You've heard and seen so much. Are you now, though you started in the Spirit, trying to continue in your flesh? Hustle, hustle, hustle. That's the constant message that the world is trying to tell you and me, and it's creeping into the church, and it needs to stop. Second part. Oh, no, let's just say one more thing, because I think this is fun. I was reading Mark 9 this week, and it's the beautiful story of the transfiguration where Jesus and a few of his disciples are on the mountaintop, and what's in Jesus is portrayed in an incredible way as he's transfigured, and he's radiant. And there's this beautiful moment where Mark notes something seemingly random, and I just want to tell you a key to reading your Bible. When something seemingly random is noted, it's not random, it's intentional. Okay, there's just like a freebie for reading your Bibles. Mark says this, he was transfigured so he was so radiant, more white than as if you had used bleach. It's just such a random thing to say. But what's he saying? What God can do, what the supernatural can do, so surpasses what you in your best efforts could do. You could apply as much bleach as you like to a person. They will never be able to achieve the radiance that God has intended unless they come under the power of the Spirit. And so God works supernaturally in them to transform them into His likeness. I love that moment. It's this moment of recognizing hustle can never compare to the empowering presence of God on a person. You and I were made not to be an advert for bleach in the world, which is what I feel like we are sometimes as Christians, walking around telling people how white they can get by using bleach. No, that's legalism. That's saying these are the things that you need to do to achieve the morality that you can see in my life, which is utter hypocrisy. No, you and I are not an advert for bleach. We're an advert for the empowerment presence of God, because what you can achieve by bleach is overshadowed by the empowering presence of God, making you radiant in the world so that everyone will see you and wonder who on earth you are. Hustle, hustle, hustle. Step one of the life cycle. Then you've got step two, the invitation to more. Here we are, Jacob, years and years and years of struggling and striving and working and finding solutions which actually cause more problems. Here he is in the mix of the hustle and God breaks in a seemingly random word and says, go back to your homeland, I will be with you. 
Now, there's lots of good reasons to think that that's not God speaking. There's really good reasons. One, there's a really big brother who's in his homeland who doesn't like him very much. He's got lots and lots of provision in the land that he's in now. All his family come from here now. His wives are part of their family. And so there's lots of good reasons for Jacob to weigh the word using plausibility as his lens rather than what sounds like kingdom. You know, 1 Corinthians 14 tells us as the community of God to weigh the prophetic. But the longer I am in Christian circles, the more aware I am that often what we do when we weigh words is look at how likely they sound and decide if it was God based on their plausibility. So we look at the word and we say, oh, okay, well, that, that just doesn't sound like me. No, I'm, I'm doing the maths here. I, I definitely can't do that. God's called you to be a preacher to the nations. I don't really like standing up in front of people, so I'm pretty sure the prophet was wrong. That's not how you weigh a word, okay? Weighing a word 101 right here. We're going to get super practical. Does it sound impossible? Does it sound like it will change the nations? Probably God then. That, that's how you weigh a word. You don't say, does it sound like me? Does it sound like plausibly something that I could do today? If it sounds like something you could do today, it's not a prophecy. The prophetic operates in the realm of the impossible. The prophetic takes you beyond what you can do in comfort. If it sounds like it might shake up your comfortable world, might well be God. But we don't like weighing that way. We dismiss prophetic words so often because our lens is, does it sound like something I think I would like? Super honest, right? And we're wondering why we're never seeing God do anything. And he's like, I told you 25 different words and you haven't done any of them. And you're still moaning in the corner because X, Y, and Z are living the adventure and I've been left behind. And he's saying no one's left behind. It's just some of us who are weighing prophetic words incorrectly. There's every reason in this moment for Jacob to say that can't be God. It's likely to send me to my death. Doesn't sound like that's God. <laughs> but amazingly, and to his credit, Jacob says, okay, here we're going to do it. We're going to up and leave, everybody. He hears the invitation for more, and he's drawn to it in that moment. This is the second part of the life cycle where God will interrupt your busy hustle over here and over there, and he'll throw in something that is random and often left field, something that doesn't appear funnily enough in your five-year plan. And he's going to come in with his interruption because he is inconvenient that way. And I'm being entirely honest with you. It is inconvenient. That's not just a funny word. When you're living it out and he interrupts and messes up your plan with his inconvenient word, it feels inconvenient. But God, I planned all these things for this side, and now you're telling me all of that is, what? well, I'm a planner. 
but I spent my money planning over here. I, I don't get it. You don't mind that my money's being wasted? I'm just speaking out of my own journey here. This is very, very, this is like group therapy with me just. I want to be honest with you because this is how it happens. People are waiting for a faith that has a sheen on it as if it won't cost you anything and as if it won't require courage or risk. That's not faith. The faith journey is surrounded by terrifying risk. That's what it feels like. Are you really scared? Then you're probably in your faith journey. Because that's what it feels like. Sometimes people say to Julian and I, I mean, we're in the middle of a crazy faith journey, and I know many, many, many of you are. So this isn't about how awesome we are, because we really aren't. If you saw us on a plane journey just a few days ago, you would know that there's no minister sheen on how we live, okay? So let's just break apart any of those misconceptions. But we're on a faith journey, and sometimes people look at me as if we don't feel what every normal person feels. Oh, you're moving your children across the nations. Do you have a home yet? No. Do you know how you're going to fund yourselves? No. Do, uh, do you know exactly what you're going to do? No. Like, uh, why is it that you're going again? Oh, God said, oh, that must make it so easy. Not really. Can I be honest? Not really. If you're waiting for your faith journey to feel easy, you don't understand the nature of faith. There's nothing easy about the faith journey. There's nothing like, oh, this is really my sweet spot. It won't be. Some of you have been holding off on the faith journey because you thought easiness would be a mark that it was God. I want to suggest to you, you're looking for the wrong markers. And so he hears God, and it makes no sense. It's inconvenient. It's an interruption into the plan. It's moving away from the direction that he thought he was going. It's all of those things. And of course, that's what makes it God. Let's not sanitize the stories we tell each other. Right? Let's not just give people the end result because we love looking like we were floating on a cloud the whole time. Because it gives us a sense of identity, slight sense of superiority if we're honest, to just give people the times where the breakthrough happened in the way that we predicted because I'm so prophetic, don't you know? No. We've got to be a community who are real with one another who are vulnerable with the moments where it goes horribly wrong, where we say, do you know what? My kids are going crazy, and I don't know what to do, because here we are trying to follow the call of God, and I've got a two-year-old and a three-year-old right before I'm about to preach, pulling at my dress, I'm thinking the buttons might rip off, and I don't know what to do. Some of you 
pretend that all you've done is soaked and fasted for five hours, and really all that's happened is you've been shouting at your spouse because you're frustrated. I'm not saying we have to say to everybody everything that's going on because there's boundaries and there's trust earned. What I'm saying is let's not pretend so that we prove ourselves to be somehow hyper-spiritual. So God finds him in the human context. And then there's the invitation for more. And then third part of the cycle. Now you're gonna love this one. (laughs) This is where it gets really fun. You thought it was scary before. This is where it goes south a little bit. This is the go big or go home moment. Every single faith journey that you walk in will have this moment. I promise you that. I've walked enough faith journeys and I've read enough about them to know that every single faith journey has this in common, the go big or go home moment. The moment where you're so far out on the limb of the tree that if it cracks, you're flat on your bottom. There's no clinging to the trunk. It's the moment where you've got to decide, do I let go and keep going. That's the go big or go home moment. Every faith journey will have it and I want to tell you it is the most frightening thing you will ever do. You will not be feeling all warm and gooey inside in that moment. You won't be hearing the angels singing hallelujah in that moment. You will not hear the booming voice of God in that moment. All you will be feeling is your heart fighting so hard inside of your chest that you think it might escape. That's the go big or go home moment, and everyone faces it. It's the moment for Moses in Exodus 5, where finally he's decided to believe God, even though it doesn't suit his comfort and it doesn't suit his personality type. Should we go there? Yes, quickly, let's go there. Personality typing. Someone's gonna have to remind me where I was because I'm about to go completely left here for a second, but let's just do this. I love personality tests, okay? I do them lots, I learn lots about them, but your personality test does not define the promises of God over your life. It doesn't determine your calling. It doesn't tell you what he's intended for you to do. It is something, a tool for you to steward, but it is not an excuse for you to use not to do the things that you don't want to do. And it certainly is not the proof of what God made you for. There are lots of examples where God used people in their weakness to do the miraculous. It sounds biblical, doesn't it? Because weakness is a platform for his power, not your strength, interestingly. So when we use our top strengths as proof of what he's called us to, we completely misunderstand where God says, it is your weakness that will attract my power, not your strength. And some of us are wondering why we're not seeing the miraculous input of God, and it's because we're consistently playing in the places of our strengths rather than asking him what he made us for. 
I heard Chris Vallotton point this out earlier this year, and it was so powerful for me because it illustrates this so beautifully. Isn't it interesting that God calls Paul, an expert in the Jewish law, to minister to the Gentiles, who he was not an expert in, and he calls Peter, who was a dropout in Jewish law, not to minister to the Gentiles, which would have been his area of strength because he didn't know the law, but to minister to the Jews. Their strengths, their personality profiles were not proof of what they were made for, and neither is it the case with you. You were made for so much more than what your personality profile says. Anyway, let's go back. Moses, Exodus 5. So he's finally said, okay, God, okay. I mean, after all, there is a burning bush that isn't burning up. It seems to be something pretty unusual. Let's just go with this. And God takes him back to Egypt, which is terrifying. And he meets with Pharaoh, which is terrifying. But here he is on his life cycle of faith thinking, this is the moment of breakthrough, people. We've done the hard work, he thinks. Bless him. (laughs) And the go big or go home moment is Pharaoh says, oh, it's really nice all that you said. It's nice that you did a few party tricks. My My guys can also do those things by my gods. Do you know how I'm going to respond? Tell those precious people that they can make bricks without straw. Bam! Straight into the go big or go home moment. Moses goes back, and now he's thinking, this, this this conversation did not go the way I thought it was going to go. I listened to you for goodness sake. I stepped out in faith as if that's the conclusion of the faith journey. And God's like, oh, my sweetheart, this is just the beginning. (laughs) This is the go big or go home moment where he speaks to the Israelites and they're like, we hate you. None of those slaves were like, oh, we're so glad you're here. All these people like, oh, yay, you're here to free us. Well, clearly not because you've just made our lives a hundred times more miserable than before. That's the crux moment. What do you do in that moment? That's the moment, the part three of the life cycle of a faith journey, where you've hit the wall and you're thinking, I have a choice to make. It's the Lord, won't you tell her to come and help me moment, where Martha goes to Jesus, where Mary has walked in faith for a moment, and she's broken into the male-only section of the party, and she's sitting at Jesus' feet, which means she's volunteered herself as a disciple. She has broken every tradition, and her heart is pounding, but there was faith in that. It was the beginning of the faith journey, and then her own sister, no less, stands there and humiliates her publicly and says, Jesus, call her out. She is so out of line. It's the go big or go home moment. What do you do in that moment? Do you stand up quickly, go, I'm so sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, uh, Sorry, Martha, I'm coming back with you right now. No, what do you do in that moment? It's the Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me moment. Where the blind men have shouted and they're told, be quiet. And Jesus is walking on. It's the moment for them to think, wait, he didn't stop? I've already shouted once. 
I've already been told off once. What do I do? He didn't turn around. They're telling me he's still walking. It's the go big or go home moment. What do you do in the go big or go home moment? Julian and I laugh so often. We're like, we're so far out on this branch. There's like, I can't even see the tree trunk anymore. Wait, was there a tree trunk at one point? I don't even know. And some of you are walking in faith journeys, holding onto that tree trunk for dear life, thinking that you can take it with you on the adventure. You can't. You have a choice to make in the faith journey. Listen, God loves you all the same. He loves you the same if you're going to stay in the hustle for the rest of your life. But there's purpose in the faith journey, and we're going to get to that in a second. You know, for Jacob, the go big or go home moment for him is when he's told as he's journeying towards his homeland, your brother Esau is coming to meet you with 400 men. Okay, time to turn around, time to change the plan. Quickly, let's run, hide. It's a desert, there's not much hiding to do, but... He's got to make a decision. It's the go big or go home moment. And you know, Jacob, I love it. And some of you will have heard me preach on this before. It's probably one of my favorite Old Testament passages where Jacob prays and he says, I'm terrified. I'm told Esau is coming to meet me and I fear him. But you said, I will do you good. And he stands his ground. And you know, in the go big or go home moment, this is how we stand in that moment. We say, but you said. God is calling his body to be a but you said kind of people. Where we hear the news, where we hear the context, where we hear the circumstance, where we hear the opposition, where we're honest before God and say, I'm terrified because every single one of us will be. That's the nature of the life cycle of faith. But then we stand on what he said, which means you better remember what he said and you better have declared it several times so that you know it well, so that in the moment you can stand on that word and say, I'm not moving an inch you said you will do me good. Everything in this circumstance is telling me that this is going to go horribly wrong. But you said you would do me good. A while ago, I was complaining at God, as I do once in a while. He's okay with it. He understands me. And I kept saying, this is the promise, but this is my problem. I kept saying it over and over again. You told us this, but look at this situation. You promised me this as if he's forgetful, but look at this context. I want to remind you, God, you said this and this and this, and now I'm just angry. And he said to me, you know, the problem with you, Katia, is that your sentence is the wrong way around. You keep saying promise but problem. And I'm telling you to say, problem, but promise. I want to encourage 
each of you, in the life cycle of faith, you will hit this moment of go big or go home where everything in you is saying to you, start thinking promise but problem. The devil will be saying to you, do you know how big the problem has just got? Do you know how impossible the situation is? Do you know how likely it is that you misheard God? Do you know how many times a day I think that? Lots. Because that's what faith journeys look like, where it's so crazy that you start thinking, gosh, this better have been really God. If not, this is a really big mess. <laughs> Being honest. <laughs> but then you remind yourself of what he said, and you check your sentence, and you make sure it's the, wrong, the right way round, and you start saying, okay, all right, problem but promise problem but promise. You do it in your conversation within your family. You say to your friends, please remind me every time I'm talking in the, about this situation, not that we super spiritualize it, not that we ignore the pain, not that none of that, not that we deny what's going on, but we keep declaring truth because we want to stand on that word and we want to keep saying, but you said, my finances are going south, but you said you would bless me. Everything that I thought would happen by this point hasn't happened. Happen, but you said, my visa still hasn't come through, but you said, right? It's the practical stuff. I don't have to, a, live, a home to live in yet, but you said. Actually, this is a good moment. Some of you need to stand up right now and you've got but you said moments that you need to start declaring. You've got things that God has spoken over you and you know it right now. You can start saying, I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet, but you said and start doing it for your situations. I don't know what you're facing, but we're going to do ministry in the middle of the talk. But you said, this is a moment for you to remind yourself of the promises of God. I can't do it for you. My but you said is different to your but you said. But in this moment, I want you to remember what God has spoken over you. And you start declaring to your circumstances, they better watch out because there's a God who is a promise keeper. We sing that in the song, but it's true. It's not just a sweet catchphrase. He is a promise keeper. And so in this moment, some of you, those of you who need this, start speaking. But you said, I can't do it for you. But you said, but you said, you told me to go on this faith adventure. It's going horribly wrong so far. But you said, huh, I'm still sick in my body. But you said, you are my healer. I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, but you said you would make me whole. But you said, but you said. Father, even in this moment, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would breathe life on the promises of God spoken over each and every one of us, that courage would rise up in the men and women of God to stand their ground, stand your ground. Don't move a muscle from the word that he's spoken over you because he who promised is faithful. He will not change his mind. He is not a liar, but he is a promise keeper. Okay, go ahead and take your seats. It's the go big or go home moment, the but you said, and it will be the most terrifying part of your faith journey. And then we come to step four of the life cycle, and we're coming into land with this. 
This is the revealing, the wrestling, and the resolving section of the life cycle. You know, it's funny. Jacob has this great moment with God, a faith moment with God, and then he goes straight back to what he knows, the hustle. He starts sending gifts. He's had this moment with God. It still hasn't occurred to him to ask God, okay, what's the strategy? You said this, so what's the strategy? No, no, he's, he's had his moment. It's a lovely moment of encounter, and then he goes straight back to the hustle. Right, let's send lots and lots of gifts because maybe, just maybe, we'll be able to appease Esau. And his heart starts coming out. His orphan-heartedness starts coming out. We start seeing the purpose for the faith journey being exposed. Because do you know in every faith journey that you are in, there is a purpose, and it's not your helpfulness to God? Surprise to some of you. You know, God doesn't invite you and me into faith adventures because he needs our help. Because he so enjoys our long-winded processing. (laughs) You're about as much help to God in your faith journey as my children are to me when they help me unload the dishwasher. (laughs) True story. It would be much quicker, much more efficient, and much easier, God knows this, to totally take us out of the equation and for him to do what he's doing. So let me just say this to you. It's very sweet because sometimes we think of ourselves more than we should, but God has not invited you into the faith journey because he really, really needed your help. It doesn't help him. It causes many, many more problems. When my children are giving me the cutlery and their dirty fingerprints are all over it, and they're dropping it now, and then they're smearing their breakfast all over the clean plates, and mommy, I'm helping you, and I'm just waiting for one of them to drop and break, and everything inside of me is like, please just go away so I can do this task quickly. None of it is helpful, but I know it's teaching them. Your faith journey has got nothing to do with your helpfulness and everything to do with what he's trying to teach you. You have an option to go for the faith journey. It will be terrifying. If you do it, you will walk into a wrestling and a resolving of some of your orphan-heartedness, or you can keep going as you are in safety. He will love you just the same but it will not give you the opportunity to renew your mind in the way that he intends the faith journey to do. Because you know, Jacob, as he starts speaking in this last section of the faith journey, you see the orphan-heartedness coming through. You see the, let me please appease him, maybe, just maybe, I can earn his favor. You see the father wound coming out, knowing that he was not the favorite. Later on, when he talks about Esau, he says to Esau, your face is like the face of God, and we see it as he wrestles God, that everything in his relationship with God is mirrored in his relationship with man, where all he's trying to do is earn the favor and appease him. Maybe, just maybe, God will accept him. And the entire faith journey has been a setup to expose that orphan-heartedness so that it can come to healing, restoration, and resolution. Your faith journey 
is not about the help that you can do for God. Your faith journey is about him setting you up to unearth some belief systems and some patterns of thinking that are alien to the kindness of his heart so that he can heal them and bring them to resolution. The final completion of the faith journey isn't so much the success of the moment, although it is a success in this story. Jacob is reunited with Esau, and you know what Esau says to him? What, what were all these gifts about? Because Esau has been coming to meet him with acceptance all along. See, our belief systems will tell us something about the nature of God, but they're lying to us. <laughs> They'll tell us that we need to gain approval where God has already risen to his feet to show you love and acceptance and favor. And so the faith journey comes to this beautiful moment where Jacob meets Esau and Esau speaks to him and shows him that murder was the furthest thing from his heart. He was coming to meet him with acceptance and a homecoming. And Jacob understands that he is accepted. Won't you stand to your feet? I don't know where you are in your life cycle of faith. Some of you have got so used to the hustle that you've forgotten there's any other way to live. And in this moment, God is wanting to remind you of the invitations for more that he has been speaking into you and you kept batting away as unlikely or inconvenient or that's just a noise from out there somewhere, I need to keep going. And God is desperately trying to get your attention for you to stop and listen because hustle isn't what you were made for. Bleaching isn't what you were made for. The transfiguration is what you were made for. There's the radiance of God coming upon you. And so in this moment, some of you just need to say, I'm done with the hustle, God. I'm done. I'm done figuring it out. I'm done being my own solution. I'm done mixing a little bit of religion and a little bit of legalism and a little bit of law to help me feel like I'm doing enough to earn something. And some of you are there. And that's your response today. Some of you are weighing a word and you keep going round and round in circles because you're not quite sure whether it's God. Does it sound impossible? Does it sound like Jesus? Will it change the world? It probably is him. And some of you are standing right in the middle of a battleground with giants facing you down. And I want to encourage you today, stand your ground. Do not budge. Keep declaring the promise to your situation. And some of you are wondering, what on earth has this all been about? And it's not your helpfulness. And it's not what you have to offer him. The whole thing has been a setup. Why do you think God is taking Julian and I and our family on this very long-winded, very random way to the States where there's lots of Christians already in the States? 
It's because he's using the journey to unearth belief systems and patterns in our hearts that we would never discover, that would never come into healing unless we entered into a faith journey with him. I have no misconceptions about this. He's not calling me to America because I'm going to be really helpful to him there that he can't find helpfulness anywhere else. No, he's calling us on this faith journey because primarily he is after our hearts to bring healing, wholeness, and restoration, and faith journeys are how he does it. And some of you have been asking this question, what on earth have we been doing? I feel like I've been walking in circles for a very long time. I'm following a promise and I don't understand it. Let him bring to the surface the little beliefs of orphan-heartedness, the things in you that say maybe he's not so kind and maybe he's not so loving. And maybe he doesn't really want to meet with me in kindness. Because I want to tell you, the Father is kinder than you can ever, ever dare to imagine. And he will be kind to you. And so, Father, as we close this session, we just ask your Holy Spirit to come and meet with each one of us in the terrifying, sometimes confusing life cycle of faith journeys and to breathe courage into us, and to speak purpose to us, and to bring us into wholeness, to bring our hearts into a place where the radiant kindness of God is washing all over us again, that the nations would hear, and the world would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen.